Okay, if no one else has one, I have a question for you, Michael. Okay. <laughs> and Dan and I were talking a little bit about this before we started. Uh, when we're practicing self-inquiry and uh, you know, the technique is either to ask the question, who am I, or hold on to the I thought. And then I use both of these methods and, and where that takes me in my own practice is, I'm not sure how to describe it, but it's not always the same place. And I'm wondering about, because uh, when I ask who am I, everything stops at that point. When I hold on to the I thought, I'm aware that I'm holding on to, I guess the best way to describe it is the word, uh, the word I. And there's a concentrated effort taking place when that happens. But when I ask the question, there's no concentration involved. And so I'm not sure why there's such a big difference in my practice or if I'm not doing it right, but I thought maybe you could elaborate on that a little bit. Okay, yes, this is very, very important. Um, well, this is the, the, the key, the, the central um, topic of Bhagavan's teachings is this actual practice. Um, Though in English books it is often recorded as if Bhagavan said, ask who am I, he didn't actually say ask who am I, he said investigate who am I. There is a big difference. If, um, if I give you a book and ask you what is written in the book, you can either sit down and ask the question, what is written in this book? Or you can investigate. If Vichara means investigation. So to investigate what is written in the book, what do you do? You open the book and see what's inside it. Likewise, to investigate who am I means to look within ourselves to see what we actually are. When we say within, um, obviously within and without, I mean, inside, outside, these are relative terms. Um, in the context, and so in different contexts, inside and outside will have will refer to different things. In the context of the practice of self-investigation, inside, looking inside means looking at ourselves, facing ourselves. Everything other than ourselves is outside in the context of self-investigation. So, though Bhagavan often talks about looking within, what he meant by looking within is looking at ourselves, being self-attentive, facing ourselves. Um, he did also sometimes describe the practice as um, investigating ego or the thought called I, or holding on to ego or the thought called I. Mm -hmm. Holding on in this context obviously means attending because it's not something physical that we can hold on to. It's not even an object that we can hold on to. It is, we have ego or the thought called I is the subject, not an object. Um, that is one way of describing it. But when we, 
if we if when it's described in that way, we need to clearly understand what is meant because Bhagavan has clarified what what is the nature of ego. Ego is a, a mixed awareness. It is sometimes described as uh, Bhagavan also sometimes describes it as chit jada granti. Uh, chit means awareness. Jada means what is not aware, and granti means not. The reason it is called chit jada granti is because as ego we are always aware of ourselves as I am this body, in which the term body doesn't just refer to a physical body but to all the five sheaths. That's body, life, mind, intellect, and will, to put it in simple terms. Um, these are all objects known by us, so they are not what we actually are. But we, we, as ego, we always experience ourselves as these five sheaves. Um, so when we're investigating ourselves, what are we investigating? Are we investigating these five sheaths? Obviously not, because they are not what we, we actually are. When we investigate ego or the thought called I, we are investigating the essential chit aspect of ego. That's the fundamental awareness, the awareness I am. That is in the, in the, in the, in the mixed awareness, I am this body. This body is the jada element, the non-aware element. The awareness element is that fundamental awareness I am. So what we are actually holding on to when we hold on to um, the thought called I, we are holding on to that fundamental awareness I am. Um, we can understand this in another way. If you see a, 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 a rope and mistake it to be a snake, and you're advised to look at it carefully. To you, it may seem that you're what you're looking at is a snake until you look at it carefully enough. But what you're actually looking at is only a rope. If you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a rope. Likewise, if we look at ego carefully enough, in other words, if we are, if we are, uh, if we are self-attentive keenly enough, we will see that what we actually are is just pure awareness. Pure awareness means awareness that is not aware of anything other than ourselves. So the practice of self-investigation is not asking the question. Asking a question may be a, an aid in that it can help to, to remind us to turn our attention back to ourselves. It is not even attending to the word I. It is attending to that to which the word I refers. That is every word. Um, if I tell you, think of an apple, you don't just think of the word apple. You think of the object that, is, that the word apple refers to. That is, as soon as you say any word, every word refers to something, either an object or an action, or a state, or an event, or something. So when 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 a word, when we mention a word, it it brings the object referred to by that word to our attention. In the case of I, though superficially we refer to this body and mind as I, what the word I actually refers to 
is to be aware to is to uh, the fundamental awareness I am. That is the 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 body, mind, and all the five sheaths, they are all objects known by us. We are in, sometimes described as we are the witness. That is, we are not anything known. We are the knower of everything. So our aim is to turn our attention away from everything that is known back towards the knower. It's slightly misleading to say it like that. Don't worry about not knowing the known. Just uh, focus on trying to attend to the knower, to the to the to that which is aware, to the extent to which we attend to the knower, namely ourself, our attention is thereby withdrawn from everything else. So the the more our, we, we the more keenly we attend to the fundamental awareness I am, the deeper with, within we go, and the more our attention is thereby withdrawn from everything else. So the, the, the practice of self-investigation is just being self-attentive. Um, it actually, today, the, the paragraph of Nana, which we are due to talk about, is the 16th paragraph, um, in which Bhagavan gives a very uh, clear definition of what is what the uh, what the name Atmavichara refers to. What he says is Sadakalamum Manate Atmavil Vaitirupatikutan Atmavicharam Indrupaya. What that means is the name Atmavichara refers only to um the word practice is not there, but it implies the practice of, uh, the, the, the actual words are always keeping the mind fixed on oneself, on Atman. Atman here means oneself. It's not Atman. Is, people talk about the Atman or the self. It's not an object. It's ourself. So keeping our mind fixed on ourself. When we talk of fixing the mind on something, it means fixing the attention on something. So he always keeping our attention fixed on ourselves. That alone is what is meant by Atmavichara. Um, is this is this answer at all helpful to you, or do uh, you have any further questions to ask? You mentioned the witness. Yes, and even your last statement about keeping your attention focused. Any conception I have of witness or witnessing is coming from ego, not from self. Yes. And that uh, any concentration I have on anything, and this is where I think effort comes into this, but if I'm concentrating on, on either the self or the awareness of self, that still seems to be like an egoic effort coming forward to do something rather than, I guess I'm looking for the differentiate. Where do I stop doing and start being? Right. Okay. That, that's, that's also a very important point. When we attend to anything other than ourself, that is a doing, that is a mental activity because our attention is moving away from ourselves towards some other thing. 
So uh, knowing anything other than ourselves is, is an action. Knowing ourselves or attending to ourselves is not actually an action. It is a cessation of action because our attention is not moving away from ourself. It is resting in its source. That's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is the nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by attending to anything other than itself. But if instead of attending to anything other than itself, if ego tries to attend to itself, it, it, it will subside and eventually dissolve back into its source. So the attending to ourself or being self-attentive, when we say attending to ourself or paying attention to ourself, it makes it sound like an action. That's why I personally prefer the, to express it as being self-attentive. We are not actually doing anything. We are just um, <clears throat> being attentively self-aware. That is, we are always self-aware. There is never a moment when we are not aware of ourselves. We are always aware I am. But generally, because of our interest in other things, we overlook I am and uh, instead uh, uh, attend to other things. But I am is always there in the background. An analogy Bhagavan often gave with the screen in a cinema. If you go to, uh, to a cinema, you will sit there for two or three hours looking at a screen. But it's as if you never see the screen because, because of you're more interested in the pictures that are projected on the screen than in the screen itself. So though you're actually looking at nothing but a screen, you overlook the screen because you're of your interest in the pictures. Likewise, we are always aware I am, but we overlook this fundamental awareness because of our interest in other things. So though we are always self-aware, we are negligently self-aware. The practice of self-investigation is to be attentively self-aware. That is not to overlook that fundamental awareness I am. Does that help at all? Uh, it does, but it still takes me up to some point where, like, <clears throat> when, when you go into deep meditation, and I'm using meditation and yeah. inquiry synonymously here, yes. not where I'm concentrating on something, and I, there's, uh, and you go into that place of stillness, that quietness, there's a, there's a time when that quietness is vibrant and alive, but yet if I begin to concentrate on that, like what is this or you know what's this? Then I then it's destroyed completely. It yeah. goes away, and I see this is this is where ego comes up, trying to do something again. But if um, I just let go. And it's possible to just let go of all thoughts and just and just be quiet. And so, but then at some point I fall asleep or I go into modern life. Right, right. That is the problem. <laughs> that is the problem. And so how do you the other part right. would be okay. how do you not do that? This is this is a very, very important point because <clears throat> there is that is withdrawing our attention from other things is the path of yoga. In, in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali begins by saying, 
yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha, which means yoga is um, is curbing or, or restraining the activity of the mind. The aim in yoga is to stop thinking, and tool uh, things like uh, practices like pranayama are means to bring about that stillness of mind. But as Bhagavan clarified, stillness of mind leads to manolaya which is just a temporary dissolution of mind. It does not lead to knowledge. So it is necessary to uh, withdraw our attention from all other things, but it is not sufficient. Every day when we fall asleep, we withdraw our attention from all other things and we, because we're too tired to continue attending to other things and we fall asleep. That is, we subside in layer. Atmavichara is is not just merely stopping thinking. It's not merely just entering into a quiet state. It, 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 is, it is being attentively aware of ourself, holding on to that fundamental awareness I am. Yes, it is. there is an effort involved because the natural flow of the mind is to go outwards. The nature of the mind is to always try to grasp things other than itself. So we are, so to speak, swimming against the current. So many people say, oh, I, I was, had a very peaceful meditation for 20 minutes. I didn't have any thoughts. That is not self-investigation. If you are actually trying to hold on to self-attentiveness, you will find it's as if it keeps on slipping from your hands because ego will be finding one way or another to, to jump out again, to hold on to something, because ego depends on other things for its survival. Without holding on to other things, ego cannot survive. Um, one analogy I sometimes give is of a, a beach ball. I don't know if you remember as a child, sometimes they have mm -hmm. big plastic balls you can play with on the beach. If you take a beach ball and try and press it into the water, if you press it down a little, you can hold it steadily. But the further down you try and press it into the water, the more it will jump up this way or that way or one way or another. Likewise with self-attentiveness. If we are just holding on to a... a, a tenuous background current of self-attentiveness, we may be able to hold on to it uh, steadily for a while, but it's not a very deep self-attentiveness. If we try to go deeper into self-attentiveness, to focus our attention more uh, keenly on ourself alone, that is like trying to push the ball deeper down. The more you push it down, the more it will try and jump up. So this this practice of self-investigation is not just stopping the thinking for 20 minutes or half an hour. Or Bhagavan even told the story of a yogi who went into Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. That He was able to stop thinking for 300 years. But as soon as he came out, his first thought, he, before going in, he had asked his disciple for water. He then went back into Nivikalpa Samadhi and after 300 years, when he came out, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? So in spite of why Bhagavan told that story, he said, in spite of remaining 300 years in, in uh, Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi, 
the, the last thought that was in his mind before he went in was the first thought that popped up when he came out. That means not even the most superficial thought in the mind is destroyed by Nirikalpa Samadhi. So what about all the Vasana? They remain intact. Nirikalpa Samadhi is a state of manolaya. It's, it is essentially no different to sleep. The difference between Nirikalpa Samadhi and sleep is how you go into it. We go into sleep because of tiredness. We go into Nirikalpa Samadhi because of yoga practices, pranayama and other practices. So merely achieving a stillness of mind is not our aim. It will result in stillness of mind. In fact, it will result in destruction of mind. But that is, that is a byproduct. Our aim is to know who am I. To know who am I, we need to attend to ourselves. If you want to see anything, what do you have to do? You have to look at it. In order to see what you actually are, you need to look at yourself. Obviously, it, it's not like looking at a physical object. We can look with our eyes and see it. It's, it's with the inner eye, with the eye of attention. We need to look at ourselves. That means we need to face back towards ourselves. Ahamukham, as Bhagavan often described it. So to be eyeward facing. Facing eye. Uh, so, so there, there's, it's very important to understand the distinction between merely stopping thinking and attending to ourself. What if, about the contradiction, Michael? Hmm? The contradiction that's, uh, that Ramana says, and we just read about it yet again last week, self-inquiry is of vital importance. More important is silence. And to me, the meaning of the word silence is to not practice self-inquiry, but to be uh, without where, where did Bhagavan say that? Well, we just read it last week, I think. Did I not? Okay. I, that is Maybe I'm wrong. Dan shaking his head. He didn't remember. Silence, I thought, was key. No. no uh, what we read was silence, silence was Ramana's highest teaching. That's what we read. All right. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I second. Uh, I second that. Silence is the highest teaching. If you can't do that, then you self-inquiry. Okay. Well, even even to say out. like that, even to say like that is a bit. Um, that is the ultimate teaching is silence. Bhagavan also gave us teaching in words, but the teachings he gave in words are turning our attention back towards ourselves, because. Uh, the silence Bhagavan is talking about is our own real nature. Mm -hmm. So we can experience that silence only by knowing ourselves. So self-investigation is the, is the path. Silence is the goal. Okay. All right. That but, makes more sense. But, but you can but, see how that can be confusing. To, it um, can be confusing, yes. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever heard it in a confusing yes, way. Yes. That, that is, we need, to be, we need to be very wary of words. We shouldn't, that is, the words, why Bhagavan said that the ultimate teaching is silence, only silence can reveal our real nature, because our real nature is silent. Words can only point us in the right direction. Words cannot, we, we can read in the books that uh, Brahman, uh, we are Brahman, and the nature of Brahman is Satchidananda, we are not this body. By reading all these things, we gain some information, we gain some ideas, but that is not self-knowledge. 
we, we, in order to know what we actually are, we need to investigate ourselves. We need to turn our attention back to see what we actually are. So the words are all useful to the extent to which they're pointing our attention back at ourselves. That is the purpose of the words. Thank you for that clarification. It is confusing. It was for me anyway. Yeah, it can easy. Words, words are confusing because as Bhagavan said, from silence arises ego. From ego arises thoughts. From thoughts arise words. So words of a great grandson of silence. <laughs> the, the, the grandfather ego is, is, um, is that is the, the first thing to manifest. Is itself a confusion? Because what is ego? Ego is the false awareness. I am this body. I am is pure awareness. This body is non-aware. So we are we are we we are co conflating two completely different things and taking them as one. Mm -hmm. So the e ego is the very um, the very embodiment of confusion, and from ego arises all other confusions. So how to how to remove this confusion caused by ego? What? by holding on to the reality of ego. The reality of ego is that fundamental awareness I am. Clarity can be found only in that awareness because that is the source of light but but ego uses to know other things. Instead of using that light which comes from within to know things outside, we should turn our attention back within and thereby merge back into that light. We should surrender ourselves to that light. We should lose ourselves in that light. Thank you. So that, that's the only way to overcome confusion. So words, Bhagavan's words are extremely useful. But we can't find the truth in the words. We need to understand what is the purpose of Bhagavan's words. The sole purpose of all of Bhagavan's teachings are to point our attention back to ourselves. Some things he does so more directly. Some of the um, ancillary teachings, so to speak, they, they are all um, indirectly pointing our attention back to ourselves. For example, when Bhagavan talks about the, the reality of the world, the reason he's, what, or, or talks about the law of karma or, any, or, or such things, anything like that, the purpose of those, if we understand what Bhagavan is teaching us, that will impress upon us all the more the need to investigate ourselves. Bhagavan doesn't talk about the world for us to begin investigating the world. He doesn't talk about karma for us to begin investigating about karma. If we understand what he teaches us about these things, it is to impress upon us the need to investigate ourselves. Because the world appears to whom? It appears to me that the world have any existence of its own. No, it just, though the world seems to exist. All we can say about the world is that it seems to exist. It appears. But to whom does it appear? In whose view does it seem to exist? In my view. So I cannot know the reality of the world without first knowing the reality of myself. You cannot know the, the reality of what is known without knowing the reality of the, of the knower. So all of Bhagavan's teachings, they're all, if we understand them correctly, they're all pointing our attention back at ourselves. They're all impressing upon us the need to investigate ourselves. 
And we can investigate ourselves only by looking at ourselves, by attending to ourselves, by looking within. Merely stopping the activity of the mind is insufficient. You have to look within to see who you are. And one more thing to say. All the Bhagavan has given us so many very useful pointers, but we can learn how to investigate ourselves only by investigating ourselves. Uh, if, if you've never ridden a bicycle, you can go and attend lectures on, on how to ride a bicycle. You can read books on how to ride a bicycle. You can read about the physics of, uh, of balance, the center of gravity, and all these things. However much you study about uh, riding a bicycle, you cannot learn to ride a bicycle except by getting on a bicycle. When you get on a bicycle, first you're going to fall off. Fall. Yeah, and you get on again and you wobble and wobble and you fall again. You wobble and wobble and fall again. Sooner or later, you get the hang of it. Exactly the same with self-attentiveness. When we begin trying to attend to ourselves, we wobble a lot. But slowly, slowly, we, we begin to get a hang of it, of, of, of what it is. And then we're able to hold on to a tenuous, Bhagavan often used to talk about a tenuous current of self-attentiveness. Sometimes he described it as self-remembrance. That should be in the back of our mind throughout the day. The more we hold on to that self-remembrance, that is a, a, at least a certain degree of self-attentiveness throughout the day, the deeper we'll be able to go in within at times when we are not engaged in other activities. So the, the more you practice pressing the the um the beach ball a little bit into the water, the more you'll you'll learn how to hold it steady and you'll be able to hold push it deeper and deeper and deeper. So um but when we try to go deep, we may be able to hold on to we we, we may be able to it, it may seem that we're able to hold on to it only for a, a moment and it slips away. Doesn't matter, Bhagavan says. However many times our attention slips away, what do we have to do? We have to bring it back again. And it's only by this persistent practice of, of every time the attention is, slips away, what it's drawn away towards something else. To whom does that other thing appear to me? So we bring it back to ourselves. So it is it requires patient and persistent practice. It's not a matter of just of stopping thoughts for uh, for half an hour or something. That may be possible, but that is not self-attentiveness. If you were really attending to yourself, you would find the thoughts would come rushing in a well, the vishay of asanas would rise as a as Bhagavan says in uh, in the eleventh uh, paragraph, though the oh tenth paragraph of Nana, those. Vishaya Vasanas, which come from time immemorial, rising countless numbers like ocean waves. They're constantly rising because it's the nature of ego trying to always hold on to something else. Because ego cannot survive without holding on to other things. So we we are we if, if you feel you're having an easy ride, you're not doing self-investigation. If you feel you're swimming against the current, so to speak, then you're doing self-investigation. Uh, no, I'm clearly swimming against the current, but yeah. <clears throat> it's a uh, there's there's nothing easy about it. It's just the term silence and the experience of silence 
is uh, and holding on to silence. And yes. I, I, it's like I'm asking for an answer when I know there isn't an answer. It's just yes. like you say, is the practice, just continue yes. practice. There is an answer. <laughs> you, you yourself are the answer. We, we, we have to look for the, of course, not, not answering words. We have to yes. look for the answer within ourselves because we ourselves are the answer. You, Tatva Masi, you are that. But Bhagavan said, what is the answer to the question, who am I? I am I. If you want to put it in words, of course, we're not looking for an answer. We're not looking for some little voice inside us to say, I am I. It is to recognize ourselves. But what we actually are is nothing other than I. That recognition of our true nature is what Bhagavan describes as I am I, as the, as the clarity, as the sporana. A clarity, a fresh clarity of awareness that we experience to the extent to which we look within. I have a quick follow-up to that, uh, yes. Michael. Thank you so much for being here. Yes. Uh, so you said the tenuous current of self-awareness and trying to bring your attention to the self, mm. even if it goes away uh, at times. So we had read in one of the readings uh, of David Godman's Who Am I? in one one line, it's uh, Bhagavan says, the the degree of absence of thoughts is the progress that you've made towards self-realization. Something around those lines. So, isn't this a thought too? The the thought of the tenuous current of self-awareness. Isn't that a thought as well? Um, firstly, about that, uh, it it is recorded in one of the books, in talks or somewhere. But someone asked Bhagavan, and uh, what is the sign of progress? And Bhagavan, it is recorded, but Bhagavan said, the degree to which you're free of thoughts. I suspect that is not very accurately recorded. That is what Bhagavan said would have been in Tamil, probably, or, or in some other South Indian language. It has been recorded in English. And whoever recorded these things, they recorded what they understood. Actually, what Bhagavan said, generally, when people asked, is there any sign of progress? Bhagavan said, one thing, I mean, Bhagavan sometimes clarified, you, if you're looking for a sign of progress, that sign of progress is something other than yourself. So you'll look, you, we shouldn't be looking for signs of progress. That's one thing Bhagavan clarified. But as a general rule, when he, when he was asked such questions, he said perseverance alone is the sign of progress. We, we have to keep on trying. Because merely being free of thought, there's, we're, the thoughts are absent in sleep. Are we making progress in sleep? So it's not consistent with Bhagavan's teaching that uh, that what is recorded there. So uh, Bhagavan may have said something; it may have been misunderstood, or uh, or we can't we we can't say. I mean, it's impossible to say. Bhagavan may have said that in a certain context, and it would have been un the person whom Bhagavan was talking may have understood what Bhagavan meant by that. Others listening may have not have understood. I I don't know, but if we have to, to understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly. We shouldn't rely on all these recordings in English books. But Bhagavan has written his teachings in his own, in his own original writings, in Naranatya Stutipanchikam, um, 
but that's five hymns to Arunachala in Upadesha Undia, Upadesha Saram, Uludu Napadu, Nana, Anmabide, in such texts, Bhagavan has written the basic principles of his teachings. If we if we study these works deeply and understand, and in order to understand them, we need to put try to put into practice what we are learning. We then grasp what are the fundamental principles of his teaching. Then when we read um, statements in talks or other such books, we can evaluate those statements according to the fundamental principles of Bhagavan's teachings. And we can then, uh, we can't be sure, but we can, we can have a, a fairly good idea how accurately that is recorded. Bhagavan, it's also recorded in places where, uh, and in, I know in, it's definitely recorded in Mahayoga. I think it also may be recorded in talks. But Bhagavan said, in yoga, they say, chitta vritti narodaha. Yoga is, is, is con controlling the thought. That is not practical. But practical way, what, what we say is Atman Vaishana. Atman Vaishana is another way of saying Atma Vicharya, investigating oneself. That is the practical way. Because if you merely stop the thought, you end up in Manolaya. And that, that yogi was in the story Bhagavan talked about, he was in Manolaya, he was in Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. But Bhagavan said he made no progress whatsoever in those 300 years because we can't make progress in Laya. Laya is a, is, the, is a temporary dissolution of the mind. It's only in waking and dream when mind is, when ego has risen along with all its vasanas, but we can begin to weaken vasanas. That is, the whole problem we're up against is the vasanas. Vasanas, vishaya, to put it precisely, vishaya vasanas. Vasanas means inclinations. Uh, um, uh, vishaya means objects or phenomena. Anything other than ourselves is a vishaya. So the inclination to attend to objects, or more precisely, the inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves, in, in vishayas, because why do we attend to other things? Because we think that we will get happiness. Well, that, that is the, the nature, uh, our nature is to be always seeking happiness. So whatever actions we do by mind, speech, or body, they are all efforts to seek happiness in something other than ourselves. So um, the, the vasanas are our inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves. Now our vasanas seem to be very strong. We seem to have very strong vishaya vasanas, very strong inclination to attend to things other than ourselves. But vasanas are jada. They, have no, they, that, they don't have any awareness. They have no strength of their own. How do vasanas acquire strength? Whatever strength they seem to have is strength that we have given them. That is, the strength that vasanas have is our own strength that we have invested in those vasanas. That is, the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, the stronger that vasana becomes. Uh, we, uh, we, to take a very simple example, supposing you have a, a liking for, um, for chocolate, 
the more you indulge in that liking, the stronger that liking will become, the more difficult it will be become for you to resist the liking. When the, when the thought of chocolate comes, it will be very difficult for you to resist it because you've habituated, you, you, you have, you've invested so much liking in that uh, thing by indulging in it more and more and more. So you'll want more chocolate, more chocolate. Even if you become sick from eating chocolate, you still hanker for more. If you begin to curb that liking, and every time the thought of chocolate comes, okay, not next time maybe, but not this time. If you slowly, slowly start curbing that liking for chocolate, the liking will it will it will lose its strength. And if for say for one year you go without eating chocolate, after one year you'll think, why was I so addicted to chocolate? What's so great about chocolate? Because you've weaned yourself off that liking. Um, so that such is the nature of vasana. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by any vasana, the stronger it becomes. So how do we weaken vasanas? By clinging to self-attentiveness, we are refraining from being swayed by any vishaya vasana. We're, because we're turning our attention back towards ourselves, we're we are withdrawing it from all other things. So though there's inclination to attend to other things, that inclination becomes weaker and weaker the more we hold on to self-attentiveness. And the inclination to hold on to self-attentiveness is what Bhagavan called sat-vasana. That is, we ourselves are sat-being. So our, our liking to hold on to our being and to be as we are, that is called satvasana. That is strengthened by, uh, by holding on to self-attentiveness and all other vasanas are weakened. Whereas if we allow ourselves to be carried away by other vasanas, we're strengthening them and weakening the, the satvasana. That is why persistent practice is necessary. It's the only way to succeed in this path. So because we can, we can, um, we can weaken the vishaya vasanas only by uh, refraining uh, or avoiding being swayed by them. Since the vasanas are not active in any state of manolaya, we not, we, you cannot make any progress at all in manolaya, whether it's called whether it's called sleep or coma or death or cable uh, and samadhi. These different names for manolaya are according to the different ways in which we can go into manolaya. Um, if you go into manolaya because of tiredness, we call it sleep. If you go into manolaya because of a, um, a blow on the head, we call it uh, uh, coma. If you go on into manolaya because of heart failure or stroke or something, we call it death. If you go into manolaya because of, uh, by means of yogic practices, we call it nivikalpa samadhi. But the, the, the means of going into that state may differ, but the state is the same. So merely a, stopping thought is not the aim of Bhagavan's teachings. In fact, in, in Nana, in the sixth paragraph, Bhagavan says, However many thoughts arise, so what? Big deal. Bhagavan is not concerned about thought. In the very next sentence, he says, uh, when... Uh, uh, um, vigilantly, as and when each thought occurs, it's necessary to investigate to whom it has occurred. 
Investigating to whom it has occurred doesn't mean asking the question, to whom has this thought occurred? It means turning our attention back to ourselves, the one to whom the thought has appeared. So whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? To me. We, we turn our attention back towards ourselves. So Bhagavan wasn't concerned about thoughts at all. He was concerned about holding on to self-attentiveness. If you hold on to self-attentiveness, there'll be no room for any thoughts to arise, because thoughts can arise only if you attend to them. Thank you. That helps. Right. Um, I think Melissa has a question too, Michael. Yes, yes. Yes, hi. Hi, hi. Michael. Thank you for being here. Um, so, thank you. This this. Um, this morning's discussion is very helpful for me because I have found myself, um, it didn't make any sense to me to, to be pursuing silence of, um, of mind, mm -hmm. to, be, to be trying to stop thoughts or stop perceptions or stop sensations uh, to try to stop the world never made any sense to me um, because often because um, Bhagavan did clarify that we're not we're not seeking a state like Manalaya that's not the point and 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 I appreciate your pointing out that one could be in Manalaya for centuries and 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 and, there, and no progress is made yeah. um but uh so so what i'm hearing now is that even in the presence of thoughts that might arise or sensations or perceptions uh a wor a world might very well be arising, but in the midst of whatever is arising, the, the practice is to investigate, to investigate the nature of awareness moment by moment by moment yeah. in right there in the presence of whatever is arising. Exactly, exactly. We, that is, we are to turn our attention back towards ourselves. If we turn our attention back towards ourselves, everything else will recede into the into the background of our awareness, so to speak. So we 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 should be indifferent to the appearance of the world. Um, in in verse six of Aranacha Ashtakam, Bhagavan explains how the world comes into existence. That is, he says, there is, uh, there is one thing, well, one, one uh, real substance, you, the heart, the light of awareness. In that context, you is referring to Aranachala. So Aranachala is the heart, the light of awareness. That is what actually exists. But from that, uh, the, the, it, oh, in you, there is an extraordinary power. He doesn't say what that power is, but in other cases, he says that power is the mind or Maya. Um, Maya is just another name for the mind. In you, there is an extraordinary power, which is not other than you. From that extraordinary power, series of subtle shadowy thoughts appear. And in the world of Prarabdha, they appear on the mirror of the mind, both as 
worlds outside and worlds inside. That is the physical world outside and the inside world of thoughts. Um, uh, But he ends that verse by saying, um, Nindrida sendrida ninevida vindre. Let them appear or let them not appear. Let or let them let let them stop or let them continue. Or or let them stop. We can take it in we can take it in two ways. We can take Nindrida means stop, in other words, it's stop appearing, and Sendrida continues appearing, or we can take it the other way around. Let it let it stop, let it stay appearing, or let it go away. We, the, the two words we can take in two opposite ways, but they both amount to the same thing. So let the world appear or let it not appear. It is not other than you. There, Bhagavan is giving us a very practical clue. We should be, you, there, he's referring to Arunachala, but Arunachala, he says, is the light of awareness in our heart. So it means Arunachala in our heart, Arunachala shining as I in our heart. We should be so interested in looking within but we should be unconcerned about the appearance of the world. Let it appear or let it not appear. It's not other than you. We hold on to that. What is real is only I am. That is what we should hold on to. Yes, thank you, Michael. That that is that is becoming very clear. That that really sweeps away uh, a lot of what was the confusion that I thought that seemed to keep coming up. And really makes the process so much more simple. Really, it 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 you know to to continue to to hold to the recognition that awareness is my essential nature, yes. and to 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 watch the way in which to not just watch but investigate the way in which awareness. Uh, it is the the yes. being of awareness yeah. in the midst of whatever may or may not be appearing. Yes. Okay, that, that is whatever may be appearing on the screen. The screen is always there. Yes. Let, let, yes. Whether let the pictures appear or let them disappear, we shouldn't be concerned about that. Our our only interest should be looking at the screen. The screen is that fundamental awareness I am. Because whatever we may experience, what is the background of all experience is this fundamental awareness I am. That is what we should be holding on to. Thank you. That that's that is really that is a really important clarification. Thank you so much. Right. Uh, and there's just one other thing I wanted to say because the topic of silence came up. When we talk about silence, silence can mean um, very different types of silence. There's there's physical silence. If you go to a very remote place, if you go up in the mountains, up in the snowy mountains, you can sometimes get to a place where you, where there aren't even birds song, even the birds are not there. It can be so, so silent. Um, that, that is physical silence. Then there's mental silence. Mental silence we experience in sleep. We experience it in, um, in layer or in, in any state where the mind is still. We experience silence. But that is not the silence Bhagavan is talking about. The 
silence Bhagavan is talking about is the background silence, the, that, that, the silence that is our own real nature, the silence that is beyond the mind. Whether the mind appears or disappears, the silence is always there. That is the silence we should be seeking. But any state of silence of mind is temporary. The silence comes and it goes. Anything that comes and goes is not real. We are seeking, the silence we are seeking is the eternal silence, the silence that is present here and now. Even while our mind is full of so many thoughts and agitations and worries about all our uh, difficulties we face in life and everything, in the midst, throughout our life, there is a background silence. That silence is what is shining in our heart as I am. However much noise the mind may be making, however much noise the world may be making, that silence is ever-present. We need to hold on to that silence, not the silence that comes and goes. The silence of the mind is a silence that comes and goes because the mind, nature of the mind is to come and go. So when Bhagavan talks about silence, he's talking about something very, very deep. He's not just talking about the physical silence or the mental silence. He's talking about the ultimate silence, which is what alone is real, what we actually are. And we cannot achieve that merely by stopping the mind, because that's, that's just a temporary state. It's a state of manolaya. We, our aim is not manolaya, but manonasa, destruction of the mind. And we can destroy the mind only by investigating ourselves, only by turning our attention back within, unmindful of the thoughts. We, what we need to be mindful of is ourself. What we need to be unmindful of is everything else. So this is, this is mindfulness meditation, if you want to call it that. But we're not mindful of anything other than ourselves. Let other things appear or disappear. It's, so what? It's no, no concern of ours. Our only concern is to be uh, self-mindful or self-attentive. But it sounds like, and, and this may be why Bhagavan never asked people to uh, uh, become recluses or uh, move away from their families. Yes. Yeah. It, it, this process that you're describing doesn't require you to sit in meditation. No. This is just something that can happen right now during this meeting, just by realizing that there's this screen deep inside of us. Yeah. That's this quietness and everything's coming, bouncing off that, if you will. The key to success in this path is love. Bhagavan often said, bhakti is the mother of jnana. And bhakti means... Uh, in, in this context, it means the love to attend to ourselves, the love to be as we actually are. Bhagavan said, if we have true love to attend to, 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 to attend to ourselves, we can attend to ourselves even in the midst of a battlefield. And he said, if you cannot attend to yourself in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to attend to yourself even if you go and sit in a cave in the Himalayas. Because even if you're sitting in a cave in the Himalayas, your mind will be uh, thinking about this or that. What am I going to do for my food? Um, it's, will I be, if there's a heavy snowfall tonight, will I be able to go down to a village to beg my food? Is it, am, am I going to be able to keep warm enough here in the winter? We'll be thinking so many thoughts. 
but the problem is the problem we face is not any problem in the world. So changing our changing the circumstances doesn't change the the problem. The problem is our own mind, our own vasanas, our own liking to attend to things other than ourselves. So we, as you say, Bhagavan never encouraged external forms of renunciation. He didn't either encourage or discourage because he said, just like marriage comes according to destiny, uh, sannyasa also comes according to destiny. Uh, if you are destined to be a sannyasi, you can't, you cannot avoid it. You will be forced into that. If you're destined to be a, uh, to be married and to have 10 children and to be working throughout your life to, to eke out a livelihood to maintain your family, you'll be doing that. But whatever be the circumstances in which we find ourselves now, this is the best circumstance for attending to ourselves. So even if your destiny is such that you have to work throughout your life to support yourself and your family, that is the most favorable circumstance for you. You shouldn't think, oh, if I was a sannyasi, I'd be free. I, I wouldn't have to think about all these things. I wouldn't have to work so hard. I could concentrate on self-attentiveness. If you can concentrate on self-attentiveness in the midst of such a, a condition, then only you'll be able to concentrate on self-attentiveness if you're a sannyasi, if you, as, as Bhagavan said, Bhagavan said very beautifully, if you cannot do this in the midst of a battlefield, you will not be able to do it in a cave in the Himalayas. It has nothing to do with the external circumstances. It's got everything to do with, are we interested in the external circumstances or not? If we're interested in the external circumstances, our mind will be going outwards. We need to give up interest in everything other than ourselves. We need to cultivate a passionate interest to know who am I. That is the only way forward. So it's without that love. That's why Bhagavan Bhagavan's made it very clear. This is the... this is. He described this practice as parabhakti tattva, the, the, the very nature of supreme devotion. The highest devotion is to hold on to self-attentiveness and be as we are. Because that is surrendering ourselves to God. Um, Michael, may I ask another question? Yes, here? certainly. Um, you, you pointed out very, very co correctly, I feel, that that words, you know, specific words that we use are extremely important. Yeah. And, and, and our use of words can maybe inadvertently uh, mislead us or, yes. or, or, or if used correctly, can, lead a, can be more helpful in leading yes. us correctly. So um, I find that when the phrase destruction of the mind is used that I, I feel that 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 isn't uh, for me that doesn't feel uh, that doesn't feel quite quite right it, because it, as as Bhagavan points out uh, and and you have pointed out and other teachers have pointed out that when we are attending when we are investigating the nature of awareness, moment by moment by moment, the, the, the mind naturally recedes and, 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 um, 
and returns, it becomes clearer and clearer that the mind is uh, is its true nature is awareness. Yes. It, it is not other than awareness. So, so I I, I feel that. There, there, there's no need for a destruction of anything, but but uh, but that it will uh, the mind will naturally naturally dissolve, so to speak, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> dissolve but, back into what it is. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, Bhagavan often said, "But when when the attention is turned outwards, we call it mind or ego." When the attention is turned inwards, we call it pure awareness. We call it our real nature. So it's the same thing. But we, mind or ego, we seem to be mind or ego only because we're looking outside. If we look back within, we will see that we were never mind or ego. We were always just that pure awareness. And yes. what appeared as mind or ego was nothing other than ourselves. So, yes, so it you. is, as you say, it's a matter of returning and dissolving back into our source. And yes. so ultimately, <laughs> nothing is destroyed because there never was any mind to destroy. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That's why Bhagavan why Bhagavan exactly. says in verse 17 of Upadeshundia, if one if one without forgetfulness, if one investigates the form of the mind, that means the fundamental awareness I, I am, if we investigate that, it will be clear there's no such thing as mind at all. That is, the outward-facing mind will, will be found to be non-existent. It will be clear we never left our natural state of pure being. Yes, thank you. Thank you. That is, that is so, much, so much clearer for, yeah. for me. Thank you. There is a verse in Bhagavad Gita, but Bhagavan has translated into Tamil. In Bhagavad Gita, it's verse 16 of, um, of chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 is where Krishna gives the real, uh, real concentrated core teachings of Advaita. Um, Bhagavan translated that verse into Tamil. It, it's verse 9 in, Upadesha, in Bhagavad Gita Saram. In that verse, it said, there is no existence of what do, of what does not exist, and there is no existence of what sorry. There's no existence of what does not exist, and there's no non-existence of what does exist. What that means is, what actually exists must always exist. Bhagavan often used to say this: what what actually exists must always exist. Whatever seems to exist at one time and not at another time doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. So the mind seems to exist in waking and dream. It doesn't seem to exist in sleep. That means it doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. The only thing that exists without ever appearing or disappearing without ever coming into existence or ceasing to exist is that fundamental awareness I am. That is what we actually are. That alone is what is real. Thank you. That, that's very interesting. I, I had never thought, uh, um, uh, um, investigated the mind uh, mm. or, or considered the mind in quite that way, that mm. mind um, arises and disappears and therefore is could not be real yes. because what what is real has no beginning and no end exactly. it does not arise or, or or disappear thank you that that's a very interesting way to think about it right i appreciate that honey you've been waiting for a long time why don't you speak up mm. 
with a question. Um, yes, one of the questions that uh, I have is with regards to, I, I'm not exactly sure who asked this question, but it was about, you know, progress and spirituality. And I think uh, since we're all conditioned, that's a question that definitely crops up. And what I've realized is that if you keep up with the practice, that thought somewhere just drops away and it doesn't seem to matter at all. Exactly, exactly. Because... Yeah. <clears throat> and the they, other question I had was on the I am. And um, I need your input on this understanding because the way I intuitively understood is you come to that gateway of I am, but that is still in the field of monolaya. Only when you drop the I and then you become the existence, am or the being, is it's monolasha. Is that correct? Um, not quite. That is the mind or ego is the adjunct mixed awareness. I am this body. I am Rani. I am Michael. I am whoever. That I, uh, when we, when I is when that fundamental awareness I am is mixed with adjuncts, that conflated awareness is what is called ego or mind. When the adjuncts are removed, the pure awareness I am that is what we actually are. I am means. I exist. So the term, but when Bhagavan, but when in Tamil he used the term irikarein. Irikarein means I am. Or sometimes he said nan irikarein. That's emphasizing the I. But uh, generally he, he would just say irikarein. Um, but you know that irikarein means, you know, the I is so implicit with the am. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And whereas in English, the I and the am are two separate. You yeah, know, it, so in there English, is a unity there which I understand. I. Yeah. Yes. That but, I understand. Irike yes. is existence yes. and so, knowledge of existence. But I am is a so, little different from that interpretation. Yeah. So, so when Bhagavan talks about Irikarein, he's referring to our being, to our existence. That is the Satchit is, is, is what is denoted by Irikarein. So, um, <coughs> When we in English we have we we because we don't generally say a verb without a pronoun, so we say I am, um, but it amounts to the same. Whether you say in Tamil, whether you say irikarein or non irikarein, it means exactly the same. There's no difference at all. Um, it's just when you say non irikarein, it puts a little bit more emphasis on it. Um, but in English, we say I am. But whenever in Bhagavan's teachings we come across the term I am, if it's been recorded correctly, Bhagavan uses the term I am on its own to refer to our existence. If we think about the words, they, when, when we say I am, am is denoting our existence. But if you say I am this person, I am this body, I am Michael, or I am Rani, am there has a different function. It's not denoting your existence, it's denoting your identity. That, that is, am is there in, in, in grammatical terms, am is there functioning as the copula. The copula means the verb, but identifies the subject with the subject complement. So, 
I I am uh, I, I am this person. This person is the subject complement. I is the subject. Am is there linking the two, identifying the two. So I am this or that is our identity. I am is our being. What is real is our being. What is false is our identity. If at all we want to have an identity, we want to say what is our identity. Bhagavan said, aham aham, nan nan, I am I. That, that is, we cannot be anything other than ourselves. So I cannot be anything other than I. So who am I? I am I. So we, Bhagavan used the term aham aham or nan nan to refer to our real identity. He said even to say aham brahmasmi or shivoham or uh, uh, even that is 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 an imperfect way of saying it because you're, you are, you, you've got two things there. You're equating two things. Why to if if Brahman is I. Then what does that mean? If I am Brahman and Brahman is I, then I am I. Why to bring in a, another word called Brahman? Do we ever refer to ourselves as Brahman? The natural name for all of us is I. In whatever language, whatever language you may be, you may be speaking, there is a pronoun that refers to ourselves. That is our natural name. So the natural name of ourself is I. So who am I? I am only I, nothing other than I. That is what, uh, that's why Bhagavan, um, that's why Bhagavan sometimes said, the, the greatest of the Mahavakyas is not any of the four Mahavakyas in the Vedas. It's in the Bible where God says, the burning bush, God speaking through the burning bush says, I am that I am. Bhagavan said that is the greatest of the Mahavakyas. Because there you've got only one thing. You've got only I am. So I am I. That is the, that is the Advaita Nubhava. The one without a second. That is, that is the implied meaning of Aham Brahmasmi. But Brahman, if Brahman is I, then who am I? I am only I. Because if I am Brahman and Brahman is I, then I am I. So, so we shouldn't bring in a, any any other name to create confusion. So, uh, but but coming back to the main point, I'm saying when we say I am, that's referring to our being. When we say I am this or I am that, is referring to an identity. Any identity other than I am I is false. Uh, our being is always real. So we can never, some, some people talk about going beyond I am. That is impossible. How can you go beyond your being? Being alone is real. Being is what you actually are. I got a different version of I am to run by. This is really a, a wonderful day of parsing words because they can have so many meanings other than what's intended. Yes, yes, uh, yes. You said, if I got you right, self-attention is very important. But, you know, self-inquiry, for all the reasons you explained, has a very big role in this work. Throughout the day, when we're not into self-inquiry, I feel like you're suggesting to be in self-attention, at least, the best we can be. So, self-attention is self-inquiry. 
Okay. It's what, 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 how else can you investigate yourself? How can you, else can you inquire what you are except by attending to yourself? So turning our attention back within uh, is self-attention and it's also self-inquiry. Throughout the rest of the day, when you're going about the, the day-to-day job, yes, travels, chores, whatever it might be, filling that time is equally important. Pretty challenging to go into self-inquiry at those moments. I've picked up a phrase, there's many phrases that might say the same thing, that I find useful for me as a reminder of the truth of my own nature. And that is simply, I am abiding in the eye. I am abiding in the eye. Uh, that, that keeps me going and it keeps me away from other thoughts that might be just unnecessary thoughts. Right. Give us some idea about how people can work throughout their waking day when they're not in direct self-inquiry to stay off of distracting thoughts and their vasanas included. Bhagavan recommends, but this, but we should be try even in the midst of other activities to be holding on to that self-attentiveness, at least a tenuous current of self-attentiveness or self-remembrance, as he as he sometimes described it in the eleventh paragraph of. Um, of, of Nana, he says, even if one if, if one holds on to self to uninterrupted self-remembrance um, until one attains one's real nature, that alone is sufficient. So the, the central practice is holding on to self-attentiveness, holding on to at least a, a certain degree of self-attentiveness or self-remembrance throughout the day. When you're thinking, I am abiding in I, that's, that's a, a thought. Why not yeah. just be I? Just, just hold on to the I. Don't worry about abiding or anything. Just hold on to that I. All right. Well, how do you suggest holding on to the I if you're not using the thought to hold on to the I? <laughs> <laughs> you're using attention. <laughs> Metaphorically, we can call, Bhagavan sometimes refers to self-attentiveness as uh, for example, in the 13th paragraph of Nana, he uses the term um, Apmachintana. Apmachintana literally means thought of oneself. In um, the 10th paragraph, he talks about Swarupa Dhyana. That means meditation on one's real nature. Meditation means thinking. But we need to understand that though it can, we can metaphorically describe it as, as thought, it's not actually a thought because the attention we pay to anything other than ourselves is a thought. The attention we pay to ourselves is not a thought, it's just a state of being. It, because thought means it's a mental activity. Attending to ourselves is not a mental activity, it's a state of being. That's why I feel the I should not be there. The I means that adjunct mixed I should not be there. The I that is aware of itself as I am Rani should not be there. The pure I alone should remain. We cannot be without the pure I. Bhagavan says in the 20, verse 21 of Upadesha Undia, after in verse 20, he says that um, when, when I, the ego, dies, the um, uh, one thing, uh, uh, appears spontaneously as I am I. 
that is um, that is the hold in Sanskrit. He says paramapurna sat. Then in the next verse, he says that is always the true import of the word I, because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, where I is absent. What he, what he means by that, when he says I is absent in sleep, the I that is absent in sleep is ego, the adjunct mixed I. But we don't cease to exist when ego ceases to exist. In sleep, ego ceases to exist, we remain. So we are always the true import of the word I. So I, and he goes on later on, he says um, in verse um 24 and 25, in verse 24 of Upadeshundir, he says, um, in their being nature, or by their being nature, God and soul are one substance. The difference is in the awareness of adjuncts. And then he says in the next verse, verse 25, seeing oneself without adjuncts is itself seeing God, because God shines as oneself. So the the different the the eye that we need to get rid of is the eye that is mixed with adjuncts. So if you remove the adjuncts, what remains is the pure eye that you cannot get rid of because you are that. So Bhagavan Bhagavan expresses things in a very simple way. So Bhagavan uses the word I to refer both to ego and to our real nature. In the same verse, he's using the, that word to refer to. So we need to understand. We need to, that's why words are just pointers. We need to, we need to think carefully about what the words mean and understand what is but what these words are pointing at. So we need to see behind the words, so to speak. It's not the vachyata that we need to focus on, it's the lakshyata. Vachyata means the literal meaning of the word, but lakshyata means the intended meaning. So sometimes when Bhagavan uses the word I, he intends it to refer to ego. Sometimes when he uses the word I, he intends it to refer to our real nature. So we need to understand, uh, we, we, he, he leaves it to us to understand from the context what he means. Why Why he, he does so? Because he, often he puts things in a way to make us stop and think about it. Sometimes there seems to be a certain contradiction. He's saying, I is absent in sleep, but he's saying, I is always present. So how, what, where's the, 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 there seems to be a contradiction there. We, that makes us stop and think to understand what he actually means. Michael, That's why Sravana Mere hearing of the teaching is not sufficient. Manana is necessary. We need to think about it, understand it, and then we need to put it into practice. Sada's had his, his hand raised for quite a while, so why don't we take his question? Go ahead, Sada. Vanakam, Michael. Vanakam. Uh, I was watching your Kendra Delhi 12 midnight, and I thought of waking up at 5, but I woke up at 6. Okay, anyway. Just can you explain what the words we are talking here, I am and separating on that in the basis of Bhagavan teaching, diet and triad, actually only one, because we are separating that I am in a diet point of view, I don't know. No, that is, when Bhagavan talks about diets and triads, that's in verse 9 of Uludunapadu, irate mupadigal, irate or dyad 
in that context means a pair of opposites. So pairs of opposites are like knowledge and ignorance, existence and non-existence, uh, life and death, happiness and unhappiness. Um, these are all pairs of opposites. And uh, triads, triads mean, uh, the, the, in Tamil Bhagavan says mupari, the Sanskrit term is triputi. That is a term used in, in philosophy. It refers to the three factors of of objective knowledge you you have when you have knowledge you first you need a knower second you need something to be known and third you need a means of knowing it so uh, for example um i see you the the i is the knower you is the thing known and seeing is, or in this case hearing uh, hearing is the is the means of knowing. So we, these these three are called a triad. In the case of I am, there's no such triad. I am is is uh, that is the knower is ego. Only when we are mixed and uh, when we when I am is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, but we know other things. So the knower is ego. The adjunct mixed awareness I. So I am is the reality underlying ego, which is the knower of uh, all, all other things. So what Bhagavan says in verse 9 of, of Uludhunapadu, he said, dyads and triads always exist holding one thing. What is that one thing? He doesn't specify there, but he did explain it means ego. Um, the, the, the reason for that is, Pairs of opposites are things known, existence, non-existence, uh, knowledge, ignorance, um, happiness, unhappiness. These are all things known by us. So all these pairs of opposites, they exist only in the view of ego. So they depend upon ego. Regarding the triputi, ego is one of the triputi, but the other two depend on it. There cannot be anything known without a means of knowing it. So but, but what is known depends upon the means of knowing it. And there cannot be any means of knowing anything without a knower. So the, the, both the, the knower, the known, the, what is the object depends upon the means of knowing it. And the means of knowing it and the object both depend upon the knower. Without a knower, there can be no means of knowing or anything known. So everything depends upon ego. So in the next sentence, he says, if one investigates within the mind what that one is, they will slip off. It means that the diet and triads will cease to exist. Why? Because when you investigate ego, ego subsides and merges back into its source. And the di since diets and tries depend for their semi-existence on the semi-existence of ego, they will disappear along with it. What then remains, that is I am. That is what we actually are. The pure being. Well, maybe we can pick up with... yes. yes. Paragraph 16, Michael. Okay, how much? Okay. Sorry, thank, thank you. I, I <laughs> muted my mic. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. No, was that a clear was, enough answer? No. Yeah, actually, I was thinking why we are, are we going beyond our 
one and only why we are separating i am and the important i we are dropping that's what i was thinking whether we, we should not even think about that in english when we say i am we have to say two words we we've got an i and an am but actually those two words are both referring to the same thing they're both referring to our being to our existence um so the in in tamil and many other languages it's simpler you can just say irakarein and you you, you is sometimes but as i said we were saying earlier bhagavan sometimes said nan irakarein when he wanted to put more emphasis on it but normally in normal normally he would just say irakarein which means the same as i am in english but it's just one word because the the um Irakrain actually means am, but the I is understood. So in, in Tamil we can say Irakrain. That is one only without a second. Yeah, that is the thing I want to say that one one only. We should not yeah, go beyond yeah, that. Yeah, yes, yes. So that means we should never allow our attention to move away from ourselves. All this talk arises. because we've allowed our attention to move away from ourselves and the purpose of this talk is to bring our attention back to ourselves yeah i think the language is the one that kind of throws us off yeah language language is useful that that is particularly the words of bhagavan are very useful because they're pointing us back to ourselves but we can easily misinterpret language language is is um it, it's it's a very imperfect way of um of of communicating the truth it can only just it, it can point us in the right direction but what the, what we seek to know cannot be known from the words but the words can show us where we can find that knowledge we can find that knowledge only within ourselves so we need to look back within Um, so we um, have to use the dakshinamurti's language yes but about dakshinamurti bhagavan told that story in a in a way that has not been told in any other book and that is bhagavan said when the uh, sanakadi rishis who have been searching for a long time for for a real guru they were old men and they came and saw sitting under this banyan tree this young 16 year old boy and they were attracted to him they could see the divine tejas the divine uh, luster of this young boy so they came and sat at his feet and they began to ask questions and though dakshinamurti is in the form of a young boy bhagavan said he felt vatsalya vatsalya means the, the the love that a father feels for his child the fatherly love he felt that fatherly love for these old men so out of his love for them he answered their questions and because they were very wise uh wise sages they were very mature ripened souls for every answer he gave they asked another follow on question which was very pertinent to the answer to the question if we if we read some books if we read talks for example you can often see um someone will ask bhagavan a question and bhagavan will give a, a, an answer 
if that person is intelligent, they'll ask a follow-on question. But instead of asking a follow-on question, they jump to some other question. But these Sanakari Rishis were not like that. They, for every, they, they listened carefully to what Dakshinamurti said, and they thought about it, and they asked another question, following on from that, a logical follow-on from that. So Bhagavan said, for a year, this went on. They were asking questions. Dakshinamurti was answering them. But then after a year, he understood, so long as he goes on answering their questions, there's no end to this. So he, Bhagavan said there was that, that, um, that spring of, uh, of, of Vatsalya, of fatherly love, was, was, uh, was surging in his heart, but he, he closed that spring. So it stopped, uh, that, that fatherly love stopped coming out, he, and he merged back into silence. As soon as he merged back into silence, they also merged into silence. When Bhagavan told this story, Murugana said, but Bhagavan, it's not written like this in any of the books. Bhagavan said, no, it's not written in any book, but this is what happened. So how can Bhagavan say this is what happened? Because he is Dakshinamurti himself. I am. So, so the, 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 it's important this because what Bhagavan is indicating by this story is that the teaching in words has its purpose. That is, because our minds are going outwards, we, without Bhagavan's teachings in words, we would never have come to this path. It's, so the teachings in words are necessary. But eventually, those teachings in words are pointing us back within. Only when we go within will we merge in the silence, but alone will reveal our real nature. So the, the verbal teachings are to lead us back to the silence, which is ever shining in our heart as I. Could, uh, Michael, could you send that story? Because I think it's a fantastic uh, example of how a mind you know, stimulates another mind and then you get stimulated and it's a vicious cycle that goes on. And so when he went into silence, he just shut off the whole yes, process. But that, that, that doesn't mean that that year spent there asking questions and his answering, that wasn't wasted because they were very good questions and very uh, useful answers. So that that was part of the process of of. Uh, of, they were already very mature souls, but they needed that 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 one year of of going through these teachings uh, in minute detail with Dakshinamurti before they were ready. When they were ready, he then went into silence. That is the implication. So, but, but we shouldn't we shouldn't neglect the teachings in words, but but but, but we. We should understand the purpose of the teaching word. The sole purpose of all of all teachings, of all real teachings, is to turn our attention back to ourselves. So if we understand the purpose of the words, the words are very useful. But eventually we have to leave the words behind and merge back into silence. Um, Michael, just may I make a, a, yes. a small comment here? Yes. Um, thank you. This this morning, especially um, the the sense of the the bhakti, the um, the sweetness, the love, the devotion. Um, 
is is really feels really present um and and i really and thank you it really i really appreciate that um i, I wanted to maybe just say a, just a, a small item about the the phrase i am mm. um in 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 english uh, i'm a native english speaker yeah. i don't speak any other languages and um in in my in my many years of investigating um, um, the what what I have come come to is the uh, what I feel is a recognition that that the I am is a it's a distinction without a difference. Uh, to use a philosophical term, um, it, our minds um, it, it seem to see it as two different two different. Point to, pointing to two different entities, but but the reality is that the that that it um, the, the one cannot it it can, you cannot have the sat without the chit. You okay. cannot have the I without the am, yeah. yes. and and yeah. you can prove it. You can prove it to yourself by a simple uh, a thinking process here that the 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 um, the I awareness. By its by by simply recognizing the I, you, that in and of itself implies being. Yes. You cannot have the I unless the I is being. And similarly, you cannot have the am, the being, without the awareness to know it. Exactly. So the, the sat and the chit are. Yes. Um, yes. They are. Inseparable, Absolutely. but 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 the mind kind of creates a, 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 a thinks it sees a distinction, but it's kind of like what one way I think of it sometimes is is um, two sides of a coin, mm. but even better than that is a Mobius strip. If you know if you've ever seen a Mobius strip, mm. it looks like there's two sides to it, but if you mm. follow the Mobius strip, it's only one. Oh yes, it, yes, yes. It, it's a a strip of it's paper, a, but it's twisted round. Right. So if yes. you draw a line round, you'll go on round and round. It, yes. Exactly. Yes. So yes, it's yes. it's an it's an illusion that yes. it appears to be two because it's really one. Yes. Yes. And and, and I and I allow myself to contemplate that yes. to to turn that over and over and over in my mind yes. until until I can see that it is inseparable. Yes. Yes. Are you and your existence two different things? Obviously not. <laughs> your existence is you yourself. So I and am are, are inseparable. We can't, cannot exactly. separate them. Yes. And what you said about the oneness of awareness and being, there's a very important verse in, well, all the verses of Bhagavan are important, in their, each in their own way. In verse 23 of Upadesha India, Bhagavan Bhagavan explains this very nicely. He says, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. And yes, yes. But yes. because if if you had if there was an awareness other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness. Right. How, how yes, can a non-existent uh, awareness be aware of anything? Right. So it's yes, a contradiction yeah. in terms. And if Yes. If, if 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 what exists were not aware, 
it would depend on something else to know its existence. So it would, whatever is known as an object, is, uh, is yes. depending on the yes. subject. So if if uh -huh. if existence were an object known by some awareness other than itself, it, so it, existence being an awareness, existence and awareness cannot be different. Yes, exactly. Yes, and and, and it point it points to their that there is only one reality. Exactly. There, there, there's not other than than the one reality that is sat chit. Yes. And 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 when that, when realizes that, then there is ananda. There is yes. there is happiness. It, yes. It it just comes naturally from yes. that re realization. Thank you. Thank you. And in that verse, Bhagavan concludes by saying that. He, he says, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. Awareness alone exists as we. In other words, we are Satchit. Ah, yes. Yes, there could not be any other. Yes. So, yes. And, and Brahman and Atman in, yes, in yes. that moment is they, they, seen as they, one. Yeah. Yes. So yes. long as you've got any division, any otherness, yes. Your, right. you, but whatever is known as another depends on the knower. And yes. the knower, <laughs> that which knows things other than itself, is only ego. And this yes, ego itself yeah. appears and disappears. So what is real is only that fundamental awareness I am, which never appears or disappears. It's the, yes. the only thing that is shining in all the three states. In, yes. in sleep, everything disappears except that fundamental awareness of our own existence. Yes, 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 and that and and that is the liberation. That is where liberation exactly uh, exactly uh, um, emerges because you re one realizes there is no other. There, there is, is no other. Yes, there is no other. Thank you, Michael. And the nature of that satchit, the nature of that I am. When we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that we are infinite love. So how can we know ourselves? Only by love. Love is the key. That, that is, that is um, something that in Bhagavan's teaching that is so strongly emphasized, but people so often overlook. But Bhagavan's teachings, are, this is, he has made it very clear, this is the path of the, the parabhakti, this is the ultimate bhakti is to know and to be what we actually are. Because what we actually, God is not anything other than what we actually are. God, If God was something other than ourselves, he would be an object. And then he would be depending upon ego, the subject. So the reality of God cannot be anything other than the reality of ourselves. So we can know God only by being God. Yes, thank you, Michael. And that requires all-consuming love because we must be ready to give up this small little person that we now take ourselves to be. We must give up this ego in order to be what we actually are. Marty, I, okay. I think we'll keep um, paragraph 16 for next time because uh, it's, a, it's actually it's a very, very important paragraph. So, um, but today's, your question today started off a very useful um, 
But, well, because, we still have one. Marie, Marie has a question oh, for Very you, good, Mike. very good. Because mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, this is the most important subject. It's, that is what Bhagavan's teachings are all pointing at, is this simple practice of being self-attentive. So this is the very <laughs> essence of Bhagavan's teaching. This is what they're all about. So if it's so simple, how come we've been talking about it for two hours now? <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't answer. That's it, not a real question. No, that's a good... It is extremely simple. We are complicated. That's the problem. All complication comes from ego. Ego complicates oh, matters. Yeah, yeah, but actually, yeah. the truth is extremely simple. And the way to reach the truth is extremely simple. Okay, Maria, come on in. Um, when you talk of being, it has nothing to do with the prana, like being alive, right? No, no. But the prana is prana is to do with the body. The body needs to breathe. It needs that is all the the physiological processes in the body, the breathing, the heartbeat, the digestion, all these physiological processes are what are collectively called prana. That is the life. But because that is not that is not our being. Our being is something far more fundamental. Yes, but sometimes um, maybe in other um, other teachers are like it's it's sometimes equated like yes, being alive yes. is being. So yes. maybe because that's they, the, being alive. We are always alive, but we mm-hmm. take the life of the body to be our life. That is not our real life. Our real life is I am. Mm-hmm. Yes. So so, so being alone is the real life. But the life of the body is not real being. Because the body, the body is something that appears and disappears. So how can it be real? Yes. So even dead, like even if the body is dead, we are. We are, or, yes, yes. Maybe that's why they say like to go beyond I am, because to them I am is... Because they misunderstand, because they're equating I am with the body, with the existence of the body. That's why Bhagavan made that clear distinction between I am and I am this or that. He said, I am this or that is ego. I am on its own, that is our real nature. Because I am is our being. I am this or that is our identity, our false identity. We cannot be anything other than ourselves. We cannot be anything other than our being. So I am I, nothing other than I. So it's the it's the sense of being alive, but not within the body, or it's not like associated with any breathing or any. Yes, you need not even say being alive, just being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because life, we associate life with the body. Uh, but if if by life you mean existing, yes, yes. We, but um, it's simpler to say just being. Yes. Because yes. you obviously cannot be alive without being. Mm-hmm. But you can be without uh, yes. the life of a body. <laughs> it's this sense of existence, but that's without being associated with anything. Anything, anything, no. All everything other than our own being 
seems to exist only in the view of ego. So it, it is a dependent existence. And even ego is a dependent existence because ego appears and disappears. Whatever appears and disappears is not intrinsically existent. This is sometimes illustrated by, by, with an analogy. If you have, say, um, no. supposing someone gives you a bowl of hot rice, the heat of that rice is not, it's not, it's not an intrinsic property of rice to be hot because you can also have cold rice. So where does that rice get its heat from? It gets its heat from the boiling water. And where the, is the water intrinsically hot? No, it gets its, its heat from the hot pan. And is the pan intrinsically hot? No, it gets its heat from the fire. Is the fire intrinsically hot? Yes, you cannot have a cold fire. Fire is always hot. So fire is an intrinsic property of fire. Sorry, heat is an intrinsic property of fire. It's only a, a, an incident, a borrowed property of um of the other thing, the pan and the water and the rice. They have borrowed their heat for ultimately from the fire. Likewise, anything that is so anything that is in any property that is intrinsic will always be there. So uh, if you have fire, you will always have heat. You cannot have a fire without heat. If we apply this to existence, I'm not saying existence is a property, but but uh, it, it, I'm saying it's, we can take it as analogous to a property in this, for, this, for the purposes of explanation. Whatever doesn't always exist is not intrinsically existence because it comes into existence and it goes out of existence. So it is, so to speak, borrowing existence for a while and then losing its existence because it's not inherently existing. So... Anything that uh, comes into existence and ceases to exist, as Bhagavan said, it doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist because it, it is just borrowed existence. So where does everything borrow its existence from? All objects, all phenomena borrow their existence from ego because they all seem to exist only in the view of ego. And ego, where does ego borrow its existence from? Because ego doesn't always exist. It appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. So ego must borrow its existence from something else. Ego borrows its existence from what actually exists, what is intrinsically existent, namely Satchit, namely I am. So ego borrows its semi existence from I am. And it lends its semi-existence to other things. So all other things resolve back into ego, which is why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Because everything borrows its existence from ego. Because it seems to exist only in the view of ego. And ego borrows its existence from Satchit. So if we want to know what actually exists, we need to go back within, find our own reality, which is I am. And it's why we're so anxious, because we can feel that this living existence will go, but yes. we won't 
we need something unlimited, uh, um, like we, we yes. create. Because our real nature, uh, uh, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, he had a very homely way of saying things. He said, the very fact that we are all dissatisfied shows that we are Brahman. Because Brahman is infinite satisfaction. The reason why we are always dissatisfied, we cannot be satisfied with anything other than our own real nature. Because everything other than our own real nature is finite. Mm -hmm. And since our real nature is infinite satisfaction, infinite happiness, we cannot be satisfied with, with anything else. So the very nature of ego is to be always dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. That's why we're always looking for happiness outside ourselves. Looking for happiness is not wrong. The problem is we're looking in the wrong direction. Because we feel ourselves to be lacking in happiness, we seek the happiness outside ourselves. But, mm -hmm. but the happiness we are seeking doesn't exist outside. It exists within us. If we look within, we'll see, oh, I'm infinite happiness already. I've always been infinite happiness. Nothing other than that. Then only all our seeking will end. And the small happiness we find in objects, it's... It's for, not for... in the objects. It's the happiness is because we, we have a desire for this object. I have a desire for some, some tasty meal. When I get the tasty meal, I, it gives me pleasure. Why? Because the desire is, is, is temporarily satisfied. So the, the agitation of that my mind, that craving for that tasty meal is satisfied. So I feel some pleasure and I think, oh, this, the, my happiness is coming from this food. Yes, it's, it's a, a taste of our true nature. And yes. when we suffer, it's, yes. it's not natural. Yeah, but Bhagavan used to give an analogy. In fact, I think it's given in other Vedanta Sastras also about a dog that went to a cremation ground. And it was very hungry dog. So he's looking for some bone. And he finally he found one old dry bone and started chewing on the bone, hoping to get some juicy marrow from inside the bone. But of course, it's an old dry bone. He's not going to get anything from that. But it was chewing on the bone. But because it's an old brittle bone, it was splintered and made so many wounds in its mouth. So after some time of chewing on the bone, the dog dropped the bone, saw some blood there, he licked the blood. Oh, this is very tasty blood. And, and went on chewing the bone. Our, Bhagavan said, our seeking happiness in things other than ourselves is exactly like that dog seeking nourishment from the bone. There's absolutely no nourishment in that bone at all. But the nourishment it thought it was getting from a bone, the blood it thought it was getting from a bone was its own blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, I, I really like this analogy. Yes. I, I, it's exactly it that. Yes, it shows yes. up the folly of our condition. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, and also it's beautiful how Bhagavan stresses happiness. Because yes. it's something we can easily relate to when are looking yes. for in our lives. That's why he, when, <clears throat> when Shiva Prakash and Pillai asked those questions, the first question he asked was, who am I? And he asked a series of questions, very nice questions, and got very useful answers from Bhagavan. Later, when Bhagavan wrote that, uh, decided to rewrite that in the form of an essay, he wrote an introductory paragraph, which was not a uh, part of the original questions and answers. In that, he the introduction 
is all about happiness. Since everyone, ha ha uh, everyone likes always to be happy and uh, free of misery, um, since everyone has greatest love for, uh, for themselves, uh, and since uh, happiness alone is the cause of love, from those three reasons we can infer, since happiness alone is the cause of love and we have greatest love for ourselves, that is because we ourselves are happiness. And then he goes on to say, in order to experience that happiness, which is one's own swabhava, one's own real nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind. So that means in the absence of all, in the absence of the mind, everything is absent. But we are happy in sleep. Why? Because happiness is our own real nature. So another reason he's giving why happiness is our own real nature. So in order to experience that, uh, to attain that happiness, oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. For that, the, uh, the investigation, who, the, the jnana vichara, the awareness investigation, who am I, is the principal means. So he, he, Bhagavan so much emphasized, it's all about what, what are we all seeking? Everyone is seeking happiness. From the greatest saint to the worst sinner, everyone is seeking only happiness. But trouble is, most of us are seeking happiness in things other than ourselves. Seeking happiness is not wrong. But the wrong lies in we are seeking happiness in the wrong place. Happiness doesn't lie in any external thing. It lies only within us. And why, like, once we get something that we were desiring and we feel satisfied and happy, why cannot it stop here? Like, why do we have to because keep... Because it, it doesn't satisfy us. It gives us a partial satisfaction for a very brief time, moment. But quickly we get dissatisfied. We want... Because we, we, what, whatever we achieve... We recognize once we've achieved it, but it's not giving us the infinite happiness that we're seeking. So we go look elsewhere. Bhagavan said, the nature of desire is such, before something is attained, even a, even a, a small molehill, oh, I, don't, I don't think he said a molehill, some, small, uh, some very small object, will appear as big as Mount Meru. Even an atom, he said, even an atom will appear as big as Mount Meru. But once you attain it, even Mount Meru will seem as insignificant as an atom. So, supposing you're very poor, supposing you've never had $100 in your bank account, and you've always desired to have $100, when you get $100, it seems, ah, you're very happy. But then that $100, after all, $100, it go in a day or two if I spend it. So it would be nice to have $1,000. So the, the, what previously seemed to you to be a very great achievement, having $100, becomes something very insignificant. Now you want $1,000. And when you had $1,000, you want $10,000. Then you want $100,000. Then you want a million. And when you get a million, you want a billion. And when you get a billion, you want $100 billion. You, We can see these, these billionaires are great are great gurus for us because they all show us however much you have. They have they have obscene amounts of wealth. People like Jeff Bezos, they they, they he has more than a hundred billion dollars. 
what can you do with so much money? But he's still not satisfied. He wants more and more and more. But he's no different to us. We are no different to him. We are seeking, always wanting something more and more. We may not be seeking money, but we are seeking more, more happiness in relationships or in learning or in this or in that. We're always seeking happiness outside. And we're always going to be disappointed. We can never find happiness outside. If we, if we are serious about seeking happiness, we should pay heed to Bhagavan's words and look for happiness within ourselves. Michael, your talk today is one of those examples where I want more and more and more. <laughs> it's one of you, the best talks you've given th for us. This Thank talk you. will not satisfy you. If you want to be satisfied, <laughs> go within. So start coming every day to us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's about I think it's about time we wrap this up here now. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Thank yeah, you, we'll put it put an end to the talk and begin seeking within. There you go. Which is the whole purpose of the talk. Yep. Thank you again. <laughs> right. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.